Welcome to Humans of Fintech, the podcast where I share the inspiring stories of diverse leaders bringing equity to financial systems through fintech. I'm Nicole Kasperson. In this episode, I chat with Drew Glover. He's the founding partner at Fiat Growth. And we have such an organic and authentic conversation where we talk about Drew's unconventional path into the venture capital world, the importance of investing in fintech companies, bringing equity to finance systems, how to diversify perspectives in the venture capital and fintech space. Plus, we also talk about our experiences with arbitrary systems and how Drew is working to ensure more people understand that there's more than one way to grow and succeed in fintech and VC. I am so excited for you to hear this conversation. It is so organic and vulnerable and honest about our experiences and The biggest takeaway is that your differences are your superpower. So let Drew teach you how to embrace those. Enjoy. Drew, welcome to Humans of Fintech. I am so excited to have you on the show. You have such an interesting background and we're going to dive into all of that. But welcome, dialing in from not so sunny California today. Yes, dialing in from California. Thank you so much for having me. I've, I've been super excited about this. Yeah, sweet. Well, you do have a very unconventional path into the venture capital world. You didn't go to business school. You were an athlete. You were uh, a walk-on, right, on the uh, athletic team. And you grew up with learning disabilities. These are not factors that are typically (laughs) in the typical mind frame, right, of what a VC leader looks like, but we need more representation. So, I want to kind of dial into those dimensions of yours first and how that actually led you to the venture capital space. It was an interesting journey for me, even from being an early kid. I think my parents were always really, really great at, you know, making me believe that, of course, I could do anything. But they worked with us. Luckily, my mom was a teacher in the Oakland Unified School District. I grew up in Oakland, California, and she noticed some of my shortcomings I think we can call it shortcomings from the standpoint of like what like traditional schooling looks like. Um, I think outside of, you know, what we know as the schooling world, um, I just think it, it like the way I grew up, the way I kind of like thought the way I learned was just different than than what we think traditional looks like. And my mom noticed that when I was a little bit younger and was just always really helpful as a teacher in the district to to make sure that I could best navigate that world that one kind of kept my confidence high, but two made it so I didn't, I didn't let those shortcomings in that world affect like my creativity and and how I thought, you know, I had dyslexia and, um, I just had some like this learning, like my, some developments were a little bit slower than others. I couldn't read very well. I don't think I was like comfortably reading chapter books to like the sixth grade, but, uh, it's so interesting because one thing I was always really good at was sports and because of that, I think a lot of really strong, intangible qualities and characteristics stem from it. Like that was leadership. That was like clear and concise communication, not necessarily stuff that communication that you need to think about before you do it, but like real time communication. And then also just like this competitive, like will to win that I think were very much foundational characteristics of myself that, that really stuck with me. I went to I grew up in Oakland. I went to private schools in Oakland, Bishop O'Dowd, and in 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 St. Paul's Episcopal School. I was great at football in high school. 
And high school was a challenge for me. I was going through as a college preparatory school. So homework took extra long. I was very happy with C pluses and B minuses. Again, was lucky to have a mom in the, in the, that was a teacher that had a, that demanded a lot of me. And so I wasn't really able to, to fall behind, but ultimately I was able to get a scholarship or a, I was actually a walk-on to the University of California, Berkeley on the football team. And it was really interesting because once I got to college, I realized that as long as you have the ability and you've been trained to work really, really hard, it's really, really hard to fail in college. High school is different, but in college, as long as you work really hard, then you can find a way to navigate that world, even at, at, at Cal, which is, you know, one of one of the most prestigious schools in the world. So I just worked really hard, uh, played football, worked really, really hard. And there was one thing, though, that I, I refused to ever try to, like, beat by just outworking, which was standardized tests. I, I did anything in my power to never have to take a standardized test. SATs, my mom, again, was a teacher. I took them, no lie, 25 times because she was a principal at that time in the district. And she was like, every Saturday, you're taking the SATs until you get a, a, oh a score that you're somewhat happy with. <laughs> but that was kind of my, my, my education journey. I graduated from Cal ultimately feeling, ultimately just feeling like, okay, I'm glad I made it out of there. And now I can try to really start discovering what my superpowers are and how I can implement them into the real world. Well, you really embody what fintech is and what the VC world needs more of. You know, fintech is meant to be unconventional. It's meant to be the disruptor. It's meant to be able to see the things that a traditional outdated financial system can't see or refuses to see, right? Or do anything about. And you do perfectly embody that as someone, right? We, uh, our society, unfortunately, has this like perceived notion and it dates back all the way to, you know, the early days of VC, right? Where someone has to look a certain way or be a certain way or have the certain SAT scores or go to the certain Ivy League school before they deserve any kind of funding or even deserve to, you know, be a partner or a founder of a VC, right? So, you know, I think sitting in your, your seat and pushing past all of those different barriers it's huge, right? And we we need to see so much more of it because if people ask me all the time, what's a way to get more money into the hands of women and diverse founders in fintech? It starts with funding, right? It starts with the VC. It starts with the partners. And there needs to be a more diversified you know, segment of those. 100%. I'm a very proud African-American man. Uh, I'm a man of color. And um I take a lot of pride in, in, in being in this VC world. I also attribute it to a number of different things. I think one of the, the, the more like nuanced one is I, I feel like timing falling into the VC space was perfect for me. I did a number of different things in my career. I was, I did business development at a production studio, at a design studio. I sold HR tech. I sold commercial business insurance. I was a food editor at a food startup. Like in my mind, I was just like, I felt like I could do a lot of things. And I had, I had this fearlessness of willing being, being willing to test things. And I never fell into this category of, oh, well, if I did this with my first job, I have to do this for the rest of my life and fall into this, this career. All those tools gave me the ability to, you know, be a couple feet deep and a mile wide versus just like 20 feet deep in one specific vertical and one specific category. 
I fell into the fintech world. I worked at a company called Steady. Um, it's a platform that helps folks in the 1099 world improve their financial health. Based out of Atlanta, it was the first time I really got an opportunity to kind of lean into this with this mindset of, you know, trying to hit my financial goals while also making sure that I was working towards with a company that had a mission to improve the financial health of call it the 90% of America that this is typically forgotten, or even more so the 75% of America that doesn't have $500 in savings in case of an emergency. Also, it gave me the opportunity um, because I was head of platform there and helped out with a number of different growth efforts, but business development and working hands-on in terms of driving new users, it gave me the ability to see different trends that were going on specifically within the fintech space. So I thought were super interesting. You talk about the future of work. You talk about folks no longer working one job to get their one source of income, but having multiple part-time jobs to create a full-time salary. Us seeing the proliferation of all these gig companies like Uber and Lyft and people engaging with tax and employee benefits and healthcare benefits in a very different way. But what I noticed is I had this one job within Steady. We had around 5 million users at this time. And I was building out the consumer-facing marketplace of Steady. So what I had is all these different companies trying to partner with us so we would recommend their products to all of our users. So they saw Steady as a distribution arm for them. And I started talking to maybe 10 to 30 companies a week. I mean, they were like hitting me up. How can I get my product inside of your product? And I started seeing this trend where this whole like web or even finance 1.0 world, there were no more products to build. You can't go build another refi product, like all this stuff. Like the creativity was dead. But I started realizing that folks, and that was because they were only focused on the 10% of America that already had money and just needed help managing their money or reinvesting it. And I was seeing this flip over to the 90% again, this 90% that I keep talking about of individuals that need more financial help and health. The people that are making $50,000 a year, not the ones that are making $100,000 a year. And as, as I started seeing this, I saw that my perspective that came from me growing up in Oakland, by me having learning disabilities, by me having all the things that made up of this like core user, gave me the ability to see what the opportunities for these companies were. And it gave me this crystal ball to be like, I see where this fits in fintech and I can help them get to this North Star they're moving towards. So that was like my aha moment. And I was lucky enough to find my co-founder, Alex Harris, who was at Chime at the time, the very large neobank, doing a very similar role. But it gave me this aha moment of realizing like, you know, the my real education was was me growing up in Oakland, was me struggling with learning disabilities and over, overcoming them. And it was me forging this, this super unique path that wasn't the traditional one that a schooling system will tell you to do, but it was the one of like, the really tough one that I had to navigate alone because everyone else was so afraid of admitting a learning disability or admitting that they couldn't read in fourth grade or, or these different things. Everything that you just said is exactly what needs to be heard, right? At the end of the day, our, our differences or the dimensions that our society typically tells us to hide. Oh, I'm not good at this or I'm not good at that or, you know, I'm different than this or... You know, oh, maybe I won't share my differences because who's going to resonate with that? Not a VC who I'm pitching my fintech company to, right? So, but the fact that like 
despite all of that, right, you continue to to persist is huge and a really important message because it's really the only way that we see more of that representation in the VC room. And that, totally. which is really such a controlling factor for the future of our industry, of fintech, right? And at the end of the day, the exposure that you have as you know someone who's seen low to middle income communities and seen families struggle or has you've had this dual right exposure into seeing what you know a struggling family looks like and a wealthier one your experiences are worth more than any education you could buy anything like that and i think it's a huge misconception that you need you know a certain criteria to enter VC or fintech, when in reality, you don't really, like you really don't need any of that if you are able to hone in on your superpowers, which you've done so well. So I might ask, how have you honed in on your superpowers so well? You know, how do you find kind of the confidence to realize my biggest insecurities are actually what's gonna get me that seat at the table? Noticing these superpowers, you know, it wasn't something that I realized until I was probably midway through my career. I was so obsessed with just trying to make it work, just trying to make it, that I became very blind to understanding like the things I was doing wrong and the things I was doing right. Also, when you have different learning challenges, and I think everyone deals with this to some extent, there's like this fake it till you make it thing that, that everyone's trying to do at some point in their life. Fake it till you make it's like a really good strategy in many cases, but one, like the times it really doesn't work is you're thinking so much in your brain of like, I need to fake it that you're afraid to actually go back and ask for feedback on what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. Because in your mind, you're like, I'm a fake, so I can't be that vulnerable to let someone else see that I am that. It wasn't till I started finding, you know, those like the true success in some of the roles that I was doing. And they just so happen to be in the sales space. They happen to be in the business development space where I was like, this is great. I have success. I have this confidence, this baseline of confidence. So now I can go back and say, what am I doing wrong? What could I be doing better? And once I started getting those questions answered, I found myself in a much more vulnerable state to, to not only ask other people, but also ask myself. And when you start asking yourself, you start to realize the things that really add value and also be able to look back on the past and be like, wow, that thing I used to be like ashamed of or that thing that I loved plays such a big role in what I am today. One of the greatest superpowers I was ever able to to get as a kid that I, I still believe is one of my greatest ones today is I grew up in, in low to middle income neighborhood. My parents, my dad was in the nonprofit world. My mom was a teacher. I got everything I needed. And a lot of times I got everything I wanted, but by no means were we a, a well-to-do family. And I always told my mom, I said, hey, I want to I want to go, I want you to be my teacher in the Oakland Unified School District. And she was like, listen, Drew, I work in the Oakland Unified School District, but I'm going to put you in private schools because um, I just know, I know too much. Yeah. And so I got all this exposure in private schools and it was, you know, I was always like one or or a couple of, of African-American children in a predominantly white school. And it gave me exposure to this different way of life, a one of means. There was a different like language even, you know, um, you know, called code switching, right? On my end. But like when I went home, I spoke differently than I did when I was in class. And I definitely spoke differently when I did when I went to those to my friends' houses from the private school. 
And even in sports, it gave me a deeper level of diversity where I was able to see all these different backgrounds on one team and find all these different ways to connect with them, regardless of their socioeconomic background, regardless of how they looked, regardless of how they acted, regardless of if they had a short fuse and got mad. But by the time I was able to continue that all the way through college and even graduate, I realized whatever room I walked into, if it was someone, if it was me going to ask for a $10 million check for a venture fund, or if it was me going to donate clothes or me going through to a homeless shelter to like pass out food, like I was able to connect on a very organic and authentic level with everyone I interacted with. I always jokingly say they're like, I'm like, do you know Spanish? Do you know French? I was like, you know what? I don't know any of that shit, but I'll tell you this. I know how to like switch the way I, my language, my body language, the way I engage with people, yeah. regardless of their background. And that power gives you the ability to go through a lot of different worlds and learn a lot of different things. And more so like, like really empower the way you think about providing a perspective when it comes to the VC world. So like code switching and the ability to just have this like universal language with everyone is something that I value. And to this day, I still like work really, really hard to be mindful of and work on. I, such sound piece of advice. And one that I think anyone working in FinTech, especially if you wanna you know, climb up ranks, you do need to have that, that capability. I mean, our industry is still also really young and growing, right? But I mean, I think we have so much in common because Similarly, I was always one of the only Asian kids in my my schools growing up. I always was in these uh, predominantly white neighborhoods and, and school systems and you know private schools and all these things that my parents put me into. But it enabled me. I've always just been in between, right? I'm I'm also I'm biracial. I'm almost like in between generations as well. So like, but it's it's made me a bridge because I can understand so many different experiences and dimensions. And I think that's exactly what you've got, right? And you bring to the table and something that because we are like almost like in between, right? And we can be these bridges that, you know, create longer bridges instead of like higher walls. We are capable of one, understanding that a lot of arbitrary systems simply just don't work for everyone. Yeah. And we also understand that there's more than one way to grow, which I think we can both challenge the typical thought process in fintech NVC, which is like, I got to grow fast. I got to have the money fast. I got to have it from this venture fund right away. And it's got to be this. And I got to do the medias and I got to. And we know that that traditional way of thinking fails people all the time. So you got to come in with a new one, right? You need to reward curiosity and creativity and out-of-the-box thinking and empathy. And it starts with the reflection that you've done. And I think if we could all do more of that, then we'd have a, we you know, we'd see a, a different picture than what we see in fintech today. But I think we're also, we're getting, we're like on that trajectory. I think there's a lot of great things that are happening right now in the VC space. I think the most important thing is a lot of folks are understanding that a change needs to happen. I can't sit here and say that I think we're always like like approaching that change in the right way, but the fact that we know it's a problem and the fact that people are constantly thinking about ways to improve that problem, I think it's a really really great step. And a lot of that I mean, obviously for me it it it's I I sit from a different vantage point because I am an African American, my minority GP and founder of a venture fund. 
I also run a growth consultancy where I can make sure that like I'm thinking about marketing and scaling these different companies and making sure that we're not looking at getting predatory products in front of, you know, marginalized communities and, and making sure that we're thinking about it from the holistic pie. A lot of folks just think that the solution is like, hey, let's just mandate like certain things. I think that is a novel idea, but I just think that the the, the solution is is not as simple as I think a lot of folks are always trying to make it. So from my standpoint, it's, you know, Fiat, Fiat Ventures, we don't have a mandate that we have to invest in minority founders. It just so happens that, you know, over 60% of the investments we've made are minority founders because of our mission, which is to lower the access barrier for the 90% of Americans that historically don't have access to to like financial tools. It's around financial mobility and, the, and financial inclusion and making sure that we are following that North Star in a very obsessive way and being always being saying, hey, like the end of the day, does it all match up to what our beliefs are? And because of that, because we kind of hold on to that North Star, we're able to, to do a lot of things organically that aren't mandated. So I do believe that like you talk about like the mission a lot of the things we're solving for needs to be inherently built into the business that you're building. It's not always that, hey, like, as long as we've invested in 10, you know, African-American founders or female founders, the box is checked. Great. Let's go raise fund, fund seven or eight or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, it's the it needs to be foundationally a part of who you are and your values. And if it is, then you don't need a checkbox. Then you don't need to exactly. set a mandate. Then you don't need to do any of that. And I think that's such a key such an unlock too. It's so, you would be maybe not so surprised, but of how many people ask me or they're just like, well, but how, like, how can VCs diversify who they are funding or how this or that? And I'm just like, yeah. listen to this podcast. Like you'll hear <laughs> from people running VCs themselves who are doing this, right? And and it's you, right? And it really does start with like it starts with you, right? And you having the acknowledgement of your experiences. If you haven't done the work to be the person that you are now to have this conversation with me, right? On this podcast, then it's a different game, right? Like you and I can play, we can play chess. Like we can play this game. Like we're ready for the next level of uh, evolution of the industry, right? Whereas like if you haven't done the work to reflect on yourself and, and make equity the, a part of the foundation of what you're doing then you're still playing checkers like you're not here yet so that's how I see it and I think a lot of the work that we're both doing is, is hopefully helping move education and, and move things into the right path so given all of the things all of the things we've been talking about the obstacles the the reflection how do you feel about your current position in the fintech industry? You know, really having overcome some of the initial difficulties in just your in your career and even in just your life generally. So, I am founder and GP, one of the GPs. I have two founders over it at, at Fiat Ventures, but that was actually inspired by my other business, Fiat Growth, um, because I you know didn't work at Sequoia, Sequoia or Excel for. 10, 15 years, you know, prior to founding Fiat Ventures, really had to forge a different path to, to basically find ways to creatively evaluate businesses to ensure that these are one investable businesses. And then also to, to be able to generate the right type of access to the companies that are going to be the next generation of wildly successful fintechs. 
So Alex, uh, my co-founder of Fiat Growth, which is our growth consultancy, we both went to Cal together and he was at Chime from Series A to Series D overseeing growth. I was at Steady. When we were building out those marketplaces, we were both talking to 10 to 20 businesses a week at one point. And when we saw that segment of companies popping up that were the 90, like like building products for the 90% of America, we started basically co-advising them. We're like, hey, you're a little too small to get in our marketplace. However, we love what you're doing. And based on our experience in the fintech space, we believe that we could help you scale in a really smart, equitable ways. So we quickly, like over the span of a couple months, started co-advising around 12 or 13 companies. We had a fairly unique model from day one. We would get a retainer for our services. We would get advisory shares in these businesses and we would ask for the right to invest. And we get that under contract, knowing that we wanted to get in the VC world, but also knowing by having the right to invest, we'd have the ability to do some special stuff. So we decided to quit our jobs after that number got too great of of co-advisorships to found Fiat Growth, our growth consultancy. We had seen so many venture dollars just go into thin air and like, you know, be set on fire because the stat is 30% of venture dollars go to marketing. And if marketing isn't done the right way, a lot of money can be set on fire quickly. We had seen this happen at previous companies. And we also knew that with a data-driven test and iterative approach, we can actually make it so we're doing 10 and $20 tests instead of $10,000 and $20,000 tests to find out what doesn't work and what does work so we can make sure we're spending money in all the right places in the most equitable way possible. Today, what Fiat Growth is, it's a growth consultancy. We are both the strategy and the execution with some of today's like most notable fintechs, where we come in, either act as a turnkey CMO or act as an entire out-of-the-box growth team for our clients. We have anywhere between 30 and 40 clients at any given time. We have 30 full-time employees. A lot of our leads come from like some really, really incredible prominent VCs all the way down to other founders that we've worked with in the past. So what that turns into is Fiat Growth One becomes an incredible due diligence arm because we have the right to invest in all these companies, but we're also doing the work in the trenches with them. So once we come up for air, we're like, this company is doing something special. We should invest. Also on top of that, we get a crazy amount of exposure to the fintech space. So we know from the macro and micro trends what's happening. We know what it takes to scale in different market environments. And we are also the team that actually executes on that. So through that, um, you know, Fiat Growth was founded four and a half years ago. In 2021, we raised our venture fund. Um, which we just announced the $25 million venture fund where we almost exclusively invest in fiat growth clients after we've worked with them for a minimum of three months. Around 40% of that fund are just companies that we see working on really valuable trends that we believe are going to be around for the next 20 to 50 years. But uh, what fiat growth has given us is the access and the the ability to evaluate companies in a really unique way. The typical early stage VC fund will look at a deck, go to a lunch with a founder, and then make a call if they want to invest or not. We get to be their entire growth team for three to 12 months prior to investment, um, which gives us a, for lack of a better term, like a very unique advantage over many other early stage investors. Well, you're building a relationship, right? As opposed to kind of the coming full circle, right? 
nothing conventional about the way that you operate, Drew, especially <laughs> the company that you have created. And it makes a ton of sense, right? Like, why wouldn't you play the long game with a company? Why wouldn't you be there? And I think what's you know unique about what you're doing and today is the real need for customized right uh, solutions for every company or let's say you know client whatever that you work with and that's applicable to you know whatever you're doing in the fintech space you know the the one size fits all is not a thing anymore we must we True. must scrap that and that's what you're doing and and you're doing it for such an important sector of the space because if we can actually get more of that diversity, more of that equity into fit, like fintech founders, then we can actually maybe see some real change in the outdated and traditional financial systems that have kept that 90% of people out. So yeah, so really, really cool work that you're doing. All right, as we round out the conversation, I want to ask you one of my favorite questions on the show, which is, if we need to be the change that we want to see, what change do you wish to see in fintech and how do you embody it? There's a lot that I'd like to see in fintech. One thing that I think is is really interesting is a lot of the financial tools that we've all known. Um, you talk about applying for a home loan. You talk about applying for a student loan. The way the evaluation tools have been structured and built historically are not updated based on what America is today. And I still believe there's a lot of inherent bias in the structure and the design of a lot of these, a lot of these financial products that still need to be innovated and changed. What I'm really excited about and what I constantly keep looking for are different embedded fintech tools that can make it so a lot of call it like finance 1.0 web 1.0 web 2.0 products can really step up to the world we live in today to make sure that it fully reflects the different types of individuals and the different types of diversity the different socioeconomic and even like location-based scenarios might pop up for different people looking to maybe own a home, maybe become a student, maybe do a number of different things. But I just want to make sure we get the bias out of all of fintech because I think that is uh, that is something that we don't get to see, so we don't feel the pain that much, but it's there and it affects a lot of people. I think what you're also getting at is really the concept of like overconfidence bias, which is this belief that an individual is not prone to or is capable of not being biased, which is frankly untrue entirely for everybody. We all have our biases. The 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 world that we lived in has been designed, right, uh, completely biased. So anyway, so that's kind of something that we as people in the industry have to, we kind of have to remove that thinking and realize like unconscious or not, there's a ton of biases. So how are we going to ensure that Maybe we have the right people around us to help us see our blind spots, right? How do we have, how are we building the right tools to, to ensure we're not perpetuating that bias? So really, I mean, and it's a, it is so much, you know, it's easier true. said than done. It is not, it is hard. Uh, it is hard work that we're all doing. And I think that 
you know, thinking of an aspirational future, it will all pay off in the end when we start to see, right, that that 90% is going to get lower and lower and lower. And, and we'll see some some real equity and, and changing the face of wealth in our world. So my final question for you, Drew, what is one piece of advice you would give listeners who feel like outsiders? It is totally fine not to be like the people you look up to. I used to want to be other people because of what they had done. And I quickly, I, I realized throughout my career that that's not, from my perspective, the way to think. The, the way to think is pull the things that you love the most of, of what these individuals have done, but weave that back into like your own making uh, of who you are, because who you are is your superpower. And there's just a couple things that can be like slightly, slightly, you know, micro edited for you to be able to make sure you forge your own path. But I was able to stop trying to be like other people and started trying to be like me and just made it so I was able to add these like extra tools onto my belt as I continue to scale throughout my career. Um, but the second I made that shift is the second I was able to really kind of take who I was to the next level. Well said. Authenticity is key to success. I had that piece of advice thrown at me and it stuck with me ever since. Completely agree with you. Drew, thank you so much for joining me on Humans of Fintech. This has been such an awesome episode and conversation. And just thank you for your vulnerability, for being honest on the show and sharing your story and experience and for building the way that you are. It is so direly needed in our space. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. To hear our next story from another diverse leader, be sure to tune in next week. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our show and give it a five-star rating as it helps our message reach more people who want to find belonging too. 